Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, welcome to New Books and Buddhist Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm Luke Thompson, the host of the channel. Today I'll be speaking with Charlotte Eubanks about her recent book, Miracles of Book and Body, Buddhist Textual Culture in Medieval Japan, published by the University of California Press in 2011. In this book, Eubanks examines a relationship between Mahayana Buddhist sutras and the human body, using Japanese tale literature, setsuwa, as a lens through which to understand this particular aspect of Buddhist textual culture, and the way in which text and body are not as as separate as we usually assume. Two of the questions she wants to answer are, what do sutras want? And, what do sutras get? She examines Buddhist scriptures from India and China to answer the former question, while she turns to Japanese setsuwa to answer the latter. Two ideas central to the book are that bodies can become texts and that texts can become bodies. Concerning the first, through reciting, reproducing, and in some sense embodying a sutra, an individual can in effect turn his or her body into the text itself, a result that the sutras themselves encourage through various admonishments, a move that can be seen as their own quest for survival. As for the second, the idea that texts can become bodies, Eubanks shows that in the Japanese context, sutras literally materialize, becoming independent actors in their own right. While it was largely through setsuwa and other such filters that medieval Japanese understood Buddhist scripture, the ease with which sutras and bodies moved back and forth along what Eubanks terms the text-flesh continuum was dependent upon Mahayana sutras' concealment of their authorship. Indeed, certain sutras went so far as to suggest that their origins are to be found prior to the Buddha himself, the figure who in traditional Buddhism would have been considered the author of these texts. This move allowed Mahayana sutras to claim agency for themselves, and thus for Japanese setsuwa to later depict sutras as willful, motivated actors, rather than mere containers for the teachings of the Buddha. Besides using setsuwa as a source for understanding the Japanese reception of Buddhist sutras, Eubanks examines the prefaces and colophons of setsuwa collections in order to understand how the compilers or authors of these tales intended this didactic literature to interact with human bodies, showing that in the ideal relationship between setsuwa and reader or listener, the reader or listener not only received ideas and ethical norms, but also came to embody, both figuratively and literally, those very ideas and norms. Besides being rewarded with a stimulating reinterpretation of the way in which sutras and setsuwas make their messages heard and felt, the reader will be treated to a plethora of fascinating accounts from nine medieval setsuwa collections. In addition, Eubanks addresses gender at various various points throughout the work, showing how Japanese and non-Japanese scholars alike have treated this genre as an erotic object, and the way in which setsuwa were conceived by their own authors and compilers as elderly female matchmakers, to give but two examples. And in the final chapter, Eubanks discusses the relationship between material form and the practice of reading, seeking to understand the development of the revolving sutra library and the persistence of the scroll in East Asian Buddhism long after the codex had come into use. This book will be of particular interest to those researching medieval Japanese Buddhism, Mahayana sutras as a genre, setsuwa, Buddhist textual culture, gender symbolism in Japanese Buddhism, medieval traditions of preaching and proselytization, and the body in in religious thought and practice. 
I hope you enjoy the interview. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to New Books and Buddhist Studies. Today I'm with Charlotte Eubanks, and we're going to be talking about her book, Miracles of Book and Body, Buddhist Textual Culture and Medieval Japan, published by the University of California Press in 2011. Charlotte Eubanks is Associate Professor of Comparative Literature, Japanese, and Asian Studies at the Pennsylvania State University. Her published work focuses primarily on the intersections of material culture, performance studies, and ethics in literature. She is the Associate Editor at the new journal, Verge, Studies in Global Asias. Charlotte Eubanks, welcome to the show, and thank you for taking the time to speak with me today. Absolutely. Thanks so much for inviting me. Now, uh, before we begin, I want to mention to our listeners that while this is your most recent book from 2011, you've got two other book projects in the works. So listeners who enjoy this interview and or uh, Miracles of Book and Body should look out for her next book. We can uh, mention those at the end of the interview. But to begin, I wonder if you could tell us a bit about yourself, where you're from, and uh, perhaps how you came to the study of Japan, literature, mm-hmm. and Buddhism, not necessarily in that order. <laughs> sure, fair enough. Although, oddly enough, it was almost in that order. All right. Yeah. Um, so I grew up in a rural part of the southeastern United States. Um, you know, my, my high school job was working as a, as a milkmaid on a goat dairy and, and things <laughs> like that. Um, and so uh, when I went to college, you know, my, my parents were like, you're going to study journalism or you're going to study to be a doctor. You're going to study to be an engineer. Um, they were very much kind of like the, 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 you know, you study to do a job kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. And I convinced them that, um, that if I studied a really hard language, maybe that would be enough of an immediate job skill that it, it would be okay to, to pay for a, a BA. Yeah. And so, um, uh, I had been really into, uh, Japanese literature. You know, I, I think probably some, hippie uh, somewhere in upstate South Carolina had sold her or his library uh, to the used bookstore in my town. And I came across just this chunk of about 50 books of, uh, you know, Kenneth Rex, Ten- Kenneth Rex Roth and uh, R.H. Blythe's study of haiku and you know, all this kind of stuff. And I, I just got into it. And so when I got to college at the University of Georgia, I figured, you know, Japanese hard language uh, at that point, really good economy, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll start studying that. Um, and, you know, from there, it just kind of really took off. Um, I had some some really fantastic teachers, um, a guy named um, Masaki Mori, um, Dejo Benedek, uh, Kaming Wong at University of Georgia, who were just these brilliant teachers of language and of literary texts. And, um, you know, it just really encouraged me, as naive as I was, to just really buckle down and study the language and get myself to Japan uh, and, and to make a go of it. And so, you know, it was a little bit of a gamble, mm-hmm. um, but, but totally paid off. Um, and so, you know, when I came back to the United States uh, after having done my BA and having lived in Japan for a few years uh, on the Japan Exchange and Teaching Program, I picked up with master's study and... Um, got very interested in um, folklore, in particular kind of some of the ways in which, especially in the 1980s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, uh, women authors like uh, Tawara Yoko, Oba Minako, Tsushima Yuko, Kurahashi Yumiko, and so forth, uh, had really gone back to um, these much older quasi-folkloric sources, um, like the Konjaku Monogatari, this you know, enormous compendium of... of uh, folkloric literature, I suppose you could call it, um, from the medieval period, and rewritten a bunch of those things. And so that was really my, my on-ramp to Buddhism. Um, you know, I went back and wanted to know, well, what, what did the, 
what kind of cultural work were these crazy stories about, you know, women eating their children and Mm -hmm. (laughs) books turning into demons and, you know, statues walking out of burning buildings. Like what, 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 what cultural work were these stories doing when they were, when they were recorded in, in, uh, you know, 10th, 11th, 12th century Japan. So yeah, that's how I got there. Yeah. Okay. So, so you, so you came to Buddhism largely through, uh, Japanese literature, I guess, primarily Mm -hmm. medieval Japanese literature, right? Right. I guess so. Well, my, my next question is going to be: How did you come to focus specifically on the topic mm-hmm. of this book? I mean, I suppose in part you've answered that, but um, I mean, this book's obviously not only about um, medieval Japanese literature and explicitly um, medieval Buddhist Japanese Buddhist literature, but it's also about the sort of relationship between that literature um, and also more canonical. Uh, Buddha sutras and the human body and that relationship. So how did you come to focus on that specific uh, aspect? Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, you know, I think it's, it's interesting when the book came out um, and and pretty much all of the reviews of it, all the coverage of it um, has primarily come from the discipline of religious studies. A certain mm-hmm. amount from, from history uh, and art history, interestingly enough, but most of the interest has been religious studies and actually I don't have a background in religious studies mm. at all. Um, all of my um, academic preparation, all of my intellectual background um, has, you know, ha- comes out of the discipline of comparative literature. Um, that's what my degrees are in, uh, that in Japanese, right? right. Um, and so um, the sutras, you know, I think the sutras are often a place where religious studies accounts of Buddhism begin. Uh, they want to start with sutras. They want to start with treatises. They want to start with canonical texts. Uh, and it actually, I didn't get to those until close to the end of, of um, my project. My my entrance into it was, I think, rather the reverse. Mm-hmm. You know, starting starting with 20th century uh, adaptations of what turned out to be largely Buddhist literature or Buddhist mm-hmm. uh, literature that had been collected and, and curated by Buddhists in the medieval period. And then, as I was trying to understand what was happening in the medieval period with that literature, why were we having these crazy stories? Then what I realized was um, that this whole genre of literature that we've come to call setsuwa or explanatory tales, Mm -hmm. these things that were often used, at least in Buddhist context, um, as part of sermons and stuff like that, were in many ways just this profound gloss, this profound act of cultural translation where you have people for hundreds of years trying to make sense of Buddhist sutras and Buddhist teachings, trying to take um, these core ideas and core texts that for the most part had stayed in classical Chinese or or some form of Buddhist modified Sinditic and explain those for a vernacular audience of lay believers. Um, And so when I then went back and, and started reading the sutras, you know, I was expecting Am I going to see some really big disconnect? Mm-hmm. That is, is, is there going to be some really big difference between what happens in this kind of, you know, dumbed down version of mm-hmm. Buddhism for lay believers and what we actually see happening in these big canonical sutras? And to me, the really surprising thing was that the answer was no. You know, that, that a lot of these ideas, maybe even all of these ideas about um, written text as having a life force, um, about the ways in which reading and holding things in your hand, 
memorizing things, ingesting things, um, the ways in which um, sacred texts can penetrate the human body, that these weren't or weren't just the, you know, sort of fantastic um, fantasies of people who were trying to encourage folk belief, although that was part of it, mm-hmm. but that these were really part and parcel of the, the metaphorical um, fabric of sutras. That is, mm-hmm. you know, starting to think about how sutras talk about themselves uh, and they do a lot of talking about themselves are pretty loquacious as a genre. You know, they have some pretty clear ideas about how they want people to read them and what they want people to do with them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think what you see in a lot of the folk literature is just a literalization of some of those metaphorical ideas. Mm-hmm. Right. So then, um, and, and, and then the focus on what, how these, um, uh, this sort of, these explanatory tales, these setsuwa, mm-hmm. And also how these Mahayana sutras that circulated in Japan, uh, the way in which they um, sort of attempted to sort of <laughs> inscribe themselves onto people's bodies or sort of mm-hmm. insert themselves into people, that was that sort of focus on the body was something that you came to uh, after reading the literature, and that you you simply noticed and was a theme that you thought was uh, that you picked up upon, or mm-hmm. is that how? <coughs> Yeah. Um, I mean, I think, you know, and this maybe belies my my disciplinary training in comparative literature, but um, I tend to read texts, whether they're sacred scripture or, you know, 20th century horror fiction mm-hmm. um, in a sort of symptomatic way. That is, I'm, I'm really interested in the level of the word and the phrase and the sentence. Um, I'm interested in what metaphors repeat themselves, um, what... Um, metonyms and synecdoche and, and various kinds of literary tropes are doing um, and sort of doing a, almost an anthropological like thick reading mm-hmm. where I, I, I build up from those words and phrases to try to understand the larger culture that's, that's producing those particular instantiations. And so um, how I started then was, was by reading these uh, both the setsuwa, the explanatory tales, and the sutras, and really just kind of keeping a log. You know, I had a list of, of these kinds of, of, of tropes that I kept finding. And then as I was reading um, in, in Buddhist studies literature um, and trying to kind of account for what had been done to deal with these tropes, you know, um, I found some interesting work, um, certainly, right? Um, Steven Tyser's uh, work, I thought, was, was very, very useful, and it's, it's um, ways of really localizing particular sutra texts. Um, Bernard Fares work, I think, was, as someone who's trained in literature, I hope I'm saying his name right. Four. Do you four? Bernard okay, four, Bernard yeah. Four. One, two, Bernard three, four. four. Yeah, okay, good. good. I'm like, there's probably that one of those, like, French... Something's yeah. on the end of that R. I can't. I can't quite do. But um, yeah. So his, you know, as for someone who's who's trained in literature and who kind of came of age in like high theory literature, yeah. you know, his approach um, to Buddhism and Buddhist texts was particularly useful. Mm-hmm. Steve Hines uh, as well. Um, but I wasn't necessarily finding happily for me the book that I wanted to write. Yeah. Um, I had a lot of um, mentors. You know, I, my degrees in comparative literature. And so 
uh, half of my committee were people who worked on um, Buddhism and Japanese Buddhism. The other half of my committee were people who worked on either medieval Christianity or um, Native American literature. Hmm. And um, and so the the importance of people like Bruce Holsinger, who was on my committee, um, for, for how I ended up conceptualizing sutras is, is probably pretty immense. Mm-hmm. Um, Bruce Holsinger's book is called... I should know. Hang on. It's in the, <laughs> I cited it in here, so I, I can look it up. Um, but it's a study of um, basically music and the body uh, in medieval Christian literature. Uh, yeah, music, body, and denial. Mm-hmm. Sorry, music, body, and desire in medieval culture from Hildegard of Bingen to Chaucer. Um, and so I ended up reading a lot of uh, his work and a lot of Carolyn Walker Bynum's work. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of people who who were doing what I thought were incredibly interesting things with medieval Christianity. Mm-hmm. And my goal was not to just import that piecemeal into the study of Buddhism, but to take that kind of methodology seriously and see what I could do with it right. when it came to Buddhist texts. Great. Um, now the now the book comprises four chapters: an introduction and a conclusion. And in the introduction, you introduce some of the central. Uh, theoretical concepts and address the study of textual culture. And as you've already noted, and as you note in the introduction, you draw not only on the standard study of textual culture in your attempt to understand the relationship between text and individual, between uh, sutra and the human body, but also on anthropology and performance studies. Um, I was wondering book if you history. Could just, yeah. I'm sorry. And book history. And book history, yeah. right. Sorry. Um, I was wondering if you could begin by just briefly explaining explaining what textual culture is, uh, touching on the difference between linguistic material and performative or performance, um, and also how your book um, maybe fits into the larger context of the study of textual culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, for me, I guess there's a, a kind of really seminal essay uh, by a guy named uh, Peter Schillingsberg called Text as Matter, Concept, and Action. And what he tries to pin down there uh, is, to me, the real heart of what textual culture is or can be. Um, his background is in um, bibliography, basically creating uh, critical annotated editions of texts. And what he's trying to do is, is to figure out, you know, what does it mean? What do we mean when we're talking about a text? We have all these different ideas, right? Is it the printed pages that are between the bindings of a codex? Um, Sometimes, you know, is it the, the red poem of a poet? Uh, is it something that's a little bit more disembodied and amorphous, like Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice, which exists out there somewhere, right? And he, he really kind of um, creates a fairly comprehensive terminology for coming to grips with what it is when we, what it is we mean when we say the word text. Mm-hmm. And... <laughs> You know, people like um, Jerome McGann uh, and others have also kind of uh, really tapped into this idea and um, done a lot with the notion that a text, whether it's a, a book or um, a often repeated um, story that's passed down in a tribe or a family or something like that, is on the one hand both a material object mm-hmm. and a sociological interaction um, that happens between certain people in a given place and is meant to do specific cultural work. 
And so I wanted to look at um, Setsuwa in medieval Japan as as its own kind of textual culture. So I wanted to look both at the material things um, themselves, that is, what did books look like? Mm-hmm. Um, where were these sermons given? What were the kinds of architecture there? What were the kinds of icons in the background? What time of day was it? Uh, what kind of clothes were people you know, said to be wearing? Uh, those kinds of really phenomenological concerns. Um, I wanted to also ask real um material questions about what sutras looked like, mm-hmm. um, what kinds of contact people would have with them, how they would read them, how they would carry them around, what they would carry them around in. Um, and then I wanted to ask some of the sociological questions too, like why did it matter? Um, what were people trying to get out of memorizing a text that maybe they couldn't even make linguistic sense of yeah. um, and that sort of thing. So all of those to me kind of really go into this, this question of what goes to make up a textual culture. I see. Thank <laughs> you. Um, so I w- want to get into chapter one, which uh, addresses sutras, but before we do just, will you, because something else you discussed in the introduction, um, out of your four chapters, the first chapter is about sutras, and then the second uh, chapter is about Setsuwa. When we, and uh, when we get to Setsuwa, I'll ask if you could just explain for listeners who aren't um, Japan people, Japan specialists, uh, what exactly Setsuwa is. But just briefly, what's the relationship between sutra and Setsuwa for the purpose of, um, well, for the purpose of the study and also, as you see it, actually historically. <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure. Well, I mean, so so sutras, you know, the Lotus Sutra, the Vimalakirti Sutra, the uh, Flower Garland Sutra, mm-hmm. uh, the Nirvana Sutra, there's, there's almost endless numbers um, of these things. Um, and, uh, you know, most of them claim to be based on or be transcripts or somehow rehearsals of the teachings of the historical Buddha. Right. There's all kinds of ways in which that is the case or, yeah. or which that is interestingly, not only the case, but also other things. Um, nevertheless, these things kind of can't come into Japan um, and stay in Chinese. Mm-hmm. And so you end up with this situation that really lasts until the 21st century where you have a very complex set of religious practices under the umbrella rubric of Buddhism, uh, which advert um, regularly to uh, major canonical texts or sutras, which none of the lay believers, and I would argue few of the the monastic or or, um, clerical uh, believers, can read or have read. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in sort of a modern Western sense of from beginning to end, you know, kind of uh, comprehensive uh, way. So this is very different to the situation that you have in, in um, Christianity or something, or, or um, perhaps maybe a, in some ways similar to what you have in contemporary Islam, where the Quran stays in 8th century Arabic, and you have large numbers of believers who don't understand 8th century Arabic and yet still recite and read uh, the Quran. Um, so Setsuwa at least in my understanding of it, is a tool. Um, If you're a Buddhist cleric and you're called upon to give a sermon, um, say uh, someone at the imperial court for the end of the year uh, wants to, you know, even up their karmic balance by sponsoring a set of sermons on the Lotus Sutra and you're a well enough preach, well known enough preacher, you get invited to come down and give one of these things. And, and you're said, you know, your topic today is chapter 12 of the Lotus Sutra. 
well, what are you going to do? Right? Uh, lecturing on this text, which stays in a classical Chinese that few of the people you're, you're lecturing to can read or access in any um, real way. And more often than not, what you have is people employing setsua, these kinds of explanatory tales. And I, we'll probably get into some examples of these mm-hmm. later on. Um, but the setsua are really this kind of bridge, this place where in the course of the performance of a sermon or the performance of a sermonizing event, the lead orator who has been you know, reading the sutras, in the case of a small ceremony, reading the sutras facing the statues of the Buddhas, now turns around and faces the audience and addresses them in Japanese and starts homilizing, basically. Um, some cases, um, the, there's a 12th century collection called the Hyakuza Hodan Kikigaki Sho, or Records for 100 Sessions of Sermon, which is really useful because it gives us the date, um, the location, the sutra passage on which they're supposed to be preaching, and then some sort of transcript of what this person actually said. And in some cases, um, you know, you almost have like a line-by-line exegesis of what's going on in the sutra. But much more commonly, the connection between the Japanese language sermon and the Chinese language text is tangential at best. Mm, yeah. <laughs> okay. So, um, so going into chapter one, in this one, in this, um, this is the chapter in which you focus on Mahayana sutras. And just to be clear to, uh, for listeners, you're just focusing on sutras that were influential in Japan. Right. Um, and you focus on the Lotus Sutra, the Nirvana Sutra, Sutra of Immeasurable Life, uh, of Meditation on the Buddha, Amitaya, Diamond Sutra, Flower Ornament Sutra, Vila Makirti, and Heart Sutra, um, sort of Heart Sutra too, to some extent. Um, now, and you discuss the means by which these sutras seek to uh, reproduce themselves and establish themselves in both human minds and in human bodies, or I guess human mind is part of the human body here, and also it, the way in which they seek to sort of um, survive in various other material forms. Um, and you argue here that we should, in this chapter, that we should regard sutras as uh, living textual entities and focus on the relationship between the sutras and human bo- uh, and human bodies. Mm-hmm. Um, now, beginning the chapter, you uh, make an important distinction, or you raise two questions that you want to answer. One of those is, what do the sutras ask for, and what are sutras given? Um, so what, what do you mean by this? Um, and how does your um, your examination of Mahayana sutras um, sort of address the first of these two? What is what does sutras ask for? Yeah, 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 um, yeah. So uh, again, I started with trying to understand this word that we usually translate in English as to read, and so um, you know. Thanks to the digital uh, digitization projects that have the entire um, uh, canon, the entire Buddhist canon online, now search functions are pretty easy. So um, I went through and I looked for every instance uh, in all of the the sutras that that you just named Mm -hmm. uh, for any words that could mean to read. Um, And I sort of collate all of these in in a little bit of a, a big data kind of way. Um, and what I found was that, that there was remarkable consistency across all of these sutras, um, where they had a real 
and, and I'm saying they in a kind of anthropomorphized way, yeah. uh, I think, advisedly, but, but they have, as a genre, a very consistent notion of what they want. Mm-hmm. They want to be held. Yeah. Like literally held in the hands. <laughs> don't, uh, don't we all? <laughs> we, we all want to be held. <laughs> We're all like Mahayana sutras. Exactly. <laughs> Just hold me. But yeah, they want to be held uh, in the hands. Uh, they want to be read. That is, they want you to look at them and move your eyes over them. Um, they want to be recited. So they want to go from being something that exists on a piece of paper held or silk or you know whatever held in your hands to being something that is held in memory that you can recite from memory. Um, so what they be held, read, recited, um, they want to be explained or sermonized on, or somehow, um, uh, you know, discussed more widely. And then they want to be written out again and given to somebody else. And so I started looking at this, this series of things that sutras wanted, um, and really thinking about what was at stake with that. And, um, notice that it, it's, it's a cycle of reproduction, right? Where you have an external object, the sutra scroll or whatever in the hands, coming into um, the human body, uh, in some ways kind of impregnating it. Um, there are, there's a certain amount of, of arrows to what goes on there. Um, but, but sort of taking up a, a symbiotic residence within the human body, reproducing first as a recited text and then as a written text and then going out into the world again and, and doing this um, sort of act of, of reproduction. And it was, it's a very symbiotic kind of relationship. And once I had kind of come to that realization, then so much of what was otherwise um, maybe kind of bizarre uh, quasi-magical promises on the parts of sutras started to make a certain amount of sense. I see. Um, that is, you know, uh, and this is stuff that um, Gregory Chopin and others have worked on in, in their kind of cult of the text in Mahayana Buddhism work. Um, but the sutras promise all kinds of wonderful boons, you know, clear straight teeth and... Um, sweet smelling breath and uh, a perfectly formed male member <laughs> for, for people who can learn to recite them, which, you know, is like all, all great. But then they also have these really vindictive moments, you know, where, where if you don't do this or if you refuse to do this <coughs> or default upon your sort of um, symbiotic reproductive imperative that um, I forget exactly how one of the sutras puts it, but but they'll it'll squash you and break your wings, you know, as like a bird that will never fly again, or trample you like grass in a hailstorm. This incredibly vindictive kinds of things, which makes perfect sense if you're talking about the survival of a life form. Mm-hmm. If you know sutras as a kind of life form, right? <laughs> so, um, so they need to be basically accepted and reproduced. And then the symbiotic part of the relationship is that those who do accept and reproduce have all these wonderful benefits that are promised in the sutras. Mm -hmm. Now, I thought one of the uh, most fascinating things that you cover in this chapter is, uh, is um, what you call these backstories, which are essentially Jataka tales, uh, stories about former lives of the Buddha. Uh, But what these sort of these backstories are included within sutras. And here you point out that these backstories uh, indicate to the reader that the Buddha is not the 
author of these sutras since he's also a character in them. Or there's some ambiguity there Mm -hmm. because, for example, he's reciting a sutra that, in fact, then you learn within that sutra that he heard long ago from another Buddha. Mm -hmm. Um, And you also point out so, and you also point out that because the Buddha is both teller of these stories, um, uh, but also a character in them, this uh, this blurs the distinction between story and storyteller. Um, <coughs> and one result of this, uh, you suggest, is that it pulls the reader in. So you give the example of the story in the Lotus Sutra in which the Buddha, who is, of course, the person recounting the Lotus Sutra, tells of one of his past lives in which he was a prince who heard the Lotus Sutra from a, a Buddha long ago. And the implication is that uh, we could be telling the sutra that we're now reading or hearing at some point in the distant future. So it sort of pulls the reader into this, um, I think you called a, a lineage or a repeating loop of textual transmission. Mm-hmm. Um, now, how does this relate to the um, question of authorship and the sort of relative... Um, I, I guess the appearance, the appearance of authorship um, in the sutras or lack thereof. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the question of authorship in Mahayana sutras is uh, a really, really thorny one, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, to say the least. Um, and uh, I mean, there's a lot of different ways that, that you can kind of go with that. Um, what I was interested in doing was to think about, um, you know, admitting, right? Someone wrote these things. Right. Um, they may or may not be, but probably are only distantly at best, uh, actual transcripts of anything that the historical Buddha actually said and so on and so forth. So taking that as a given and, and, and sort of decentering the, no- the notion of the sutras as this kind of given word of an enlightened being, what do we have? Um, and um, I thought that Alan Cole's work um, – in this regard was particularly useful and, and especially the way that he begins to show that sutras are open-ended documents. Um, and that was an idea that I really kind of took and, and ran with. So uh, they're not complete uh, in any sense. Um, that is, I mean, you know, you, you can go to, um, well, I'll just leave it at that. They're not, they're not complete in any sense. They, they leave themselves up to being sort of radically open-ended. Yeah. And so um, you get this idea that, uh, you know, you could hear a, a sutra being preached in one life and then in some later incarnation could be the person actually preaching that sutra yeah. and become kind of part of the text. Um, it sounds kind of like this um, sort of uh, metafictional contemporary avant-garde literary strategy uh, in some ways, but, you know, it was also um, taken quite seriously by a number of people. One of the, the, the person whose story um, I begin with uh, in the book uh, is uh, a guy who uh, cuts off his own ear. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, he uh, is uh, really, really interested. He's, he's distraught. There's a you know medieval Japanese Buddhist monk who's distraught at not finding his own name in the sutras. This is this is Mioe. Mioe, yeah. right? Mioe. Yeah. And you're going, okay. <laughs> you're about you know at least a thousand, maybe t- almost two thousand years too late to have been there. Um, but you know he has this idea. Well, if I cut off my ear, then somehow I will have affected this open-ended text in mm-hmm. such a strong way that I might actually then miraculously the next time I read it find my my name mentioned 
uh, in this story that I'm reading. Um, and so, you know, he had, he and, and he's not alone, right, uh, had really taken seriously this idea of sutras as being this sort of um, incredibly open-ended, unfinished types of sacred documents. Mm-hmm. <coughs> okay. So um, now w- w- what does this sort of, um, this aspect of these Mahayana sutras um, that you discuss, what does this, a- what are the implications then of this aspect for the sort of issue of agency? Because in a sense you, um, it seems you're presenting them as pre- saying that Mahayana, these Mahayana sutras themselves are presenting themselves as being the agents or their own authors in a sense. Right. Um, <clears throat> that's a really difficult question. I mean, I think in, in part, one of the things that it does is it allows the sutras themselves to be the locus of miracles or mm-hmm. to be a, a productive force for the creation of miracles. And that's what um, gets taken up so uh, intently in uh, Setsuwa literatures. R- 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 rather than the Buddhas or beings who preach those sutras. Right, right, yeah. because it allows the sutras to be relics. I see. Right, so yeah. it's sort of re- displacing the or replacing the uh, the the Buddhas and the Bodhisattvas, whoever the Buddhas who are supposed to preach them. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, in some ways, displacing. I mean, I, th- I think. Um, I mean, there's, there's certainly, right, uh, bits of the, well, supposedly bits of the, the Buddha's robe or a Buddha's tooth or something like that that has mm-hmm. um, miraculous properties and, and that sort of thing, or that, that is deemed to have miraculous properties throughout much of, of East Asia, um, <coughs> throughout you know, the, the kind of classical, medieval, early modern periods. Um, but much more often than not, it's um, bits of text, right? Little pe- bits and pieces of sutra texts uh, that have these miraculous uh, abilities. And so I don't think it's so much that um, you have a, a literary text or a piece of scripture replacing the bodily relics of the Buddha. Mm-hmm. It's, that, it's that the textual fragments are bodily relics Yeah. also. Yeah. Okay, so then in the second chapter, <laughs> you, you move on to Setsuwa. Mm-hmm. Um, and here you discuss um, these works exist or these texts existence um, somewhere between literature and performance and the historical context in which uh, Setsuwa flourished. Mm-hmm. Now, at the beginning of the chapter, you set out uh, two goals. One is, and I quote, to decouple Setsuwa from the more modern question of national identity and focus instead on examining Setsuwa in their medieval performance context articulating a sense of how monks and very occasionally nuns uh, sought to explain the complexity of Buddhist doctrine to lay audiences. And a second goal, and perhaps more pertinent to the larger themes of your book, um, is to consider the prefaces, uh, is to look at the prefaces and the colophones of these setsuwa to um, look at what the intentions and motivations of the authors or compilers of these works were, (coughs) and specifically how the authors or compilers of these works intended to uh, these compilations too, and here I quote again, work, if not always as a body, at least on the body mm-hmm. of the reader or listener. So um, so before we get into those two goals, could you just give a brief explanation for um, non-Japanese specialist listeners mm-hmm. uh, of what exactly Setsuwa is? Sure. Um, uh, sets- go ahead. <laughs> no, sorry, that's a... <laughs> kind of a broad question sometimes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, setsuwa is one of these um, terms which just kind of has this really broad 
semantic range and um, I think has been subject any number of times to kind of semantic hijacking. Uh, in some ways, it's a little bit of a back formation as well. Um, setsua literally is, setsu, it means explanatory or to explain, uh, and wa is tale. So a, a tale or a story that explains something. Um, as you would expect from that kind of definition, it's it's got a, a huge range of things um, that it can mean. Um, for the most part, the, the term really came into prominence in the 20th century, um, and it was used primarily by Japanese scholars of medieval literature to talk about um, these kinds of texts that float somewhere between being individual authored texts and kind of the property of a folk tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, so often retold tales or something like that. And so it's part of this, this transition that you see in a lot of cultures between uh, oral literature to written literature. Um, and a lot of these scholars were very interested in what was happening in um, globally in terms of the folklore and the folkloric um, as a place of geographic, geographically specific imagining. Um, and so, you know, like the, the, for instance, the world of the Grimm brothers and their collections of Hausmärchen um, and the ways in which that kind of allowed for the, the coalescing of a German national or ethnic identity. Um, similar arguments were put into place about Japan and the role of folklore, um, for instance, in figures like um, Yanagita Kunio and Seki Kego and others um, who went through and, and sort of canvassed various parts of, of rural Japan for some sort of storehouse or treasure house of Japanese local identity or, or ethnicity. Um, in that setting, the word setsua kind of just exploded and came to mean almost anything. Uh, so people were talking about the Cinderella setsua, for instance, as a kind of meme that could get picked up and told and retold in different times and places for various ends. Much more limited sense of Setsuwa, though, uh, is traceable, although just barely, to a much earlier time period. Um, So, for instance, you have um, a collection, I'm going to have to look and see exactly what the year of the collection is, the Kohon Setsuwashu. Let's see. And I'm not going to be able to come up with it right away, but it's, you know, it's a, I think it's a 1200s a collection of um, explanatory tales that are associated loosely with um, uh, explaining Buddhism and the concepts of Buddhism to lay believers. And in that context, you see the word setsuwa being used um, in this sort of much more limited sense of um, moralistic or didactic explanations, um, uh, a way of kind of translating difficult material to lay audiences or commoner audiences. And it's really that sense um, of setsuwa that I'm interested in in this book. Um, yeah. You know, it comes up as, as things like seppo, um, so explanations of the Dharma in particular, <laughs> in the case of Buddhism. Right. So for uh, Japan people, I just want to mention the uh, mm-hmm. primary, for uh, the nine setsuwa collections that you uh, focus on, this, the Nihon Ryoiki, the Samboe, the Hokke Genki, uh, Hyakuza Hodan, Kikigakisho, uh, Konjaku Monogatari Shu, Hobutsu Shu, Hoshin Shu, Kankyo no Tomo, and Shaseki Shu. And these basically span a four century period from the earliest Nihon Ryoiki being 823 to Shaseki Shu being, I guess, uh, 1279 to 83. Um, so 
Now, so, what, so one of the things you've done in this chapter is that you have looked at the prefaces and the colophons and to see what the motivations and the intentions of these compilers or authors are um, and how they intend these def- how they intend these uh, collections to function. Mm-hmm. So how is it that they are to function? <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, so one of the one of the ways that um, the compilers talk about their collections of setswa mm-hmm. is as medicine mm-hmm. um, or as food, some kind of nourishment. And so similar to the ways that we saw sutras as being embodied texts or texts that have a body, we see setswa collections, or at least the compilers of setswa collections, thinking about Setsuwa is something that acts on the body. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, they'll say things like, uh, my intention is for um, this collection of stories, however humble and ill-prepared it might be, you know, various humility topoi, um, <laughs> to act like medicine um, that, you know, the, the, those who hear them will sort of swallow these stories and take them inside and that they'll, they'll transform uh, people from the inside out or they'll talk about them as food. Um, one of the other kind of interesting uh, ways that people, uh, compilers had of thinking about their setsuwa was almost as a, a marital go-between. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is sort of seeing themselves as compilers and more importantly, the compiled stories as being um, a matchmaker mm. who would take the believer by the hand um, and lead her or him to union with the Buddha. Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, they, they get quite specific here with these notions of um, uh, readers or um, the audiences for Setsuwa being these kind of um, virginal brides who are going to be carried in the carriage of the Setsuwa collection to the Buddha's hometown, where they will then be feted and welcomed uh, as a bride and presumably initiated into the, into the household there. Um, and so there are these, these really kind of very physical types of, of ideas about the kind of work that Setsuwa are meant to do. Right. <coughs> and then you also mentioned the role of uh, the uh, Setsuwa as, I guess it's the Setsuwa collection as salt and the, or, or, or the compiler author as uh, a salt gatherer. Right. And you notice the, you, so it, it's, and that the, um, well, maybe you can explain what the, the gender aspect there in terms of right. salt gatherers traditionally. Mm-hmm. Salt gatherers or seaweed gatherers. There's a lot of pun that's, puns that are kind of going on there because to, to gather together something, to rake something in, to compile something, um, are all versions of the word takeru and to write something as well. Um, and so you see a lot of the compilers of Setsuwa collections who are essentially men, either aristocratic men or monastic men, thinking about themselves as seaweed gatherers or as salt gatherers. And seaweed gatherers and salt gatherers in in traditional Japanese literature um, are are typically these kind of um, eroticized, lower-class, half-naked women. (laughs) You know, so so you, you have a lot of poetry, for instance, about the salt gatherers and their her lonely life down by the seashore, uh, you know, sort of windswept um, clothes clinging to her body with <laughs> with the salt water and things like that. And so, this kind of ways in which these um, these religious figures step into these bodies that are very different in terms of gender and class and eros um, to me is is just it's one of the most fun things about Setsuwa collections. Yeah. I think. 
So, okay. So, um, so moving on from uh, the chapter two, in which the focus is on Setsuwa, in um, in chapter three, uh, entitled "Decomposing Bodies, Composing Text," you look at the uh, Setsuwa bodily sacrifice and corporeal dissolution as instances of performative writing. That's that's a quote. Um, and the textual citations here seem to be of two types: those depicting physical decomposition or decay of the human body, either uh, a rotting corpse or through uh, sort of just old age, and then also those depicting um, sacrifice of the human body. (laughs) And you also make a few arguments in this chapter, um, for example, that the Setsuwa see the human body as a text and sacred writings as sentient beings, sort of (laughs) kind of reversing the relationship between human and text. Um, and, and that, and, and along with this, there's a transformation of the body into textual fragment, textual fragment into body, which, uh, you argue shows the very physical (coughs) nature of this interaction between text and reader. Um, and you, and one of the less important point in this chapter that I'll mention, uh, right here is that you argue that observing the decay, either the corpse or in the context of reclusion, um, transforms the human body from a site of impurity into a container of the Dharma. Mm-hmm. So um, how does all this happen, according to the logic found in Setsuwa? I mean, um, perhaps we could start with the sort of way in which, um, maybe we could start with uh, the Setsuwa depictions of physical do- uh, decomposition or decay of the human body. Yeah. So, um, I mean, it's sort of an interesting segue, having just talked about how the compilers of Setsuwa collections will often figure themselves as these kind of erotic uh, seaside salt gathering women. Mm-hmm. Um, when uh, within Setsuwa or explanatory tales themselves, you more often than not find the female body as not eroticized, mm-hmm. um, but as this kind of pus-filled um, source of decay. Um, it's, it's almost misogynistically um, violent uh, with, with human bodies. And so a lot of the stories come out of this tradition of attempting in a monastic context to um, cut off uh, desire, uh, sexual desire. And, um, so they, the stories themselves advert to this supposed monastic practice of going to charnel grounds and watching the decay of a human body, um, particularly a, a human woman's body from, you know, her first arrival there when the corpse still looks like a beautiful woman all the way through the various gross stages to, you know, just being pure white bleached bones in the sun and watching this process of the decay of the human body is supposed to, for the monastic, then short circuit any, you know, erotic desire that he might have for a particular woman. Um, <coughs> in the Setsuwa themselves, though, we often see women who have taken on this practice, um, who have, um, you know, it's not that they feel desire for themselves and they're trying to cut off any sort of autoeroticism. It's that they see in the contemplation of their own bodies and their own inevitable aging and decaying and that sort of thing, um, a fundamental truth about Buddhism, that is sort of the, the, the doctrine of impermanence, um, but then 
also, and here's what I find so fascinating about it, they see this as a chance to be a Buddhist text, right? So you've got stories of women who um, decide to do things like become recluses within their own houses. They stop bathing. They stop brushing their teeth. They stop combing their hair. They stop changing their clothes. They stop uh, disposing of menstrual blood. Um, They wear clothing that is therefore vomitous and bloody and dirty. Uh, Their skin is bruised. Their teeth are falling out. Their hair is falling out and all these kinds of things. And they end up uh, often being interviewed by Buddhist priests. Um, And in the course of the interview with these Buddhist priests, these women will reveal an incredibly um, strong sense of agency. That is, um, they're really looking at their own bodies, not not so much as a source of revulsion or a source of filth, right? A a bag of pus Mm -hmm. in the traditional Buddhist terminology, but they're saying, no, look, I am an embody of imper- embodiment of impermanence. I am doing with my body a Buddhist scripture. Mm-hmm. Right? I'm, I'm performing Buddhist scripturehood or you know, scripture-ness or something right here. I'm quoting it with my actions. I'm citing it with my ge- gestures. I'm reciting the scriptures, the sacred texts with my, with my blood, with my hair, with my bones and these kinds of things. Um, and I'm incorporating myself, I'm making of my body an exemplary text mm. of Buddhism. And so they really kind of turned that logic of, of filth um, on its head. And they completely invert this language about being, you know, the, the body, particularly the human body, uh, the woman's body as being a bag of filth into um, a very strong claim for what's called a... Um, container of the Dharma or Hoki uh, in Japanese. And it's this, this language, the container of the Dharma, they really seize upon. And when you go back to sutras and you look at where this language is coming from, it's coming from descriptions of the Buddha's disciples and the ways in which particular ones of them had really um, created of themselves ideal receptacles made of themselves in the capaciousness of their memories and the purity of, of their minds, they had created or turned themselves as into Dharma receptacles, places where in some sort of idealized sense, at least the Buddha could pour his enlightened words and they could simply hold it in their memory without um, uh, compromising it or, or infusing it with any other base substances. And so the ways in which in Setsuwa literature, these women turn from bags of filth to Dharma receptacles, I think is incredibly powerful and, and goes to the heart of the ways in which in this medieval Buddhist textual culture that I'm talking about, people were taking very seriously the idea of the human body and the sacred texts as different nodes on a continu- on the same shared continuum. Yeah. And it seems that as the human body sort of decays, so to it become to the extent that it decays, well, in these cases at least, it becomes it sort of transforms into a sacred text of sorts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like a citation. Right. Uh, a hence, citation. Hence the uh, the title of the chapter Decomposing Bodies Composing Texts. <laughs> Right. Um, so what about, so that's uh, sutra depictions, uh, sorry, setsuwa depictions rather of 
the decomposition and decay of the human body. Um, what about Setsuwa depictions of uh, what's Japanese shashin or a sort of sacrifice of the human body? Is this basically the same logic then uh, mm-hmm. occurring here? I think it is. Um, it's gendered very differently, mm-hmm. but it's it's essentially the same kind of logic. So these um, setsuwa that deal with the destruction of, of the body or whatever, they often go back to um, uh, jataka tales and, and things that have to deal with the theme of forbearance. Um, and in particular, um, figures who um, are threatened uh, in some way or another. And so um, stories where... I think probably the, the best one is, is or the, the clearest example is um, of a, a person who is a Buddhist believer um, and um, is basically dismembered sort of bit by bit, right? Fingers chopped off, hands chopped off, arms chopped off, right? Sinews completely undone, all these kinds of things. And the question this person is being asked is, you know, at what, at what point will you relinquish uh, your belief? And, and eventually what comes um the, the climax of the story is that, you know, this person is completely unstrung. How they are still talking is you know, beyond, beyond yeah. imagination, but I was completely unstrung and yet is still, um, uh, you know, strongly committed to, to the Buddhist um, notion of forbearance. And then yeah. through this, through this act of, of bodily dissolution, eventually wins over the opponent to, to faith um, and that kind of thing. But the basic idea of the human body, being pulled apart into its constituent bits um, and those constituent bits being a performance or a citation of Buddhist text, whether it's in the case of a, of a bodhisattva of forbearance or in the case of a woman who is no longer bathing, that the core logic is about the same. Mm-hmm. I see. So, um, <laughs> so uh, moving on in chapter four, you talk about the uh, over, and this is again, a quote, uh, or uh, the overlap between descriptions of medieval practices of chanting, memorizing, and copying sutras. And you look at this as these as ways in which Setsuwa collections elaborate an understanding of sutras as living substances capable of affecting the uh, memorial and physical processes of the human body and ultimately of incorporating themselves into human form. Um, now, one of the concepts... Uh, central to this chapter is that of embodied memory and the notion that writing and memory are simply two ways to store a text. Now, what's the importance of, or what are, what's, what's the importance of these ideas, this idea of embodied memory and this idea that writing and memory or memory is just another way to store a text. Uh, what's the importance of these ideas in understanding Setsuwa's explanations of sutras and what are the implications for the relationship between um, sutra and reader or listener. Um, I'm thinking, for example, of the cow who hears the Lotus Sutra and the story of Kaku. Um, well, Kaku Ken's, I guess, the uh, the faulty memory example, but sorry, please. <coughs> yeah. <coughs> Excuse me. Not at all. Um, the This last chapter is basically a kind of inversion of the one immediately before. So if, if the last, if the third chapter is really about what happens when human bodies dissolve and dissolve into what turns out to be textual fragments, then the chapter we're talking about now is the reverse question, right? Um, how do textual fragments um, turn themselves into human bodies or, or take on full embodiment? Um, and 
in some ways, I mean, at the at the risk of kind of beating beating the idea uh, over the head uh, too many times, um, what I'm really trying to get at here is um, is just the idea that it, it works both ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, that um, it's not just that human bodies can dissolve into and become citations of scripture. Mm-hmm. It's that scriptures also want to do the other thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, scriptures also want to take on uh, embodied form, um, and because of the way sutras work that I sort of outlined in the, in the first chapter, uh, they have to do this. They, they have to claim in a very strong sense um, embodiment. And so <clears throat> I look at all these stories about where um, bits and pieces of sutra text um, take on human form. Um, you see this in the material culture of the time very clearly. Um, there are sutra copying practices where each written character of a sutra is sitting on a lotus petal throne, just like iconography, uh, uh, iconographically, sorry, the body of a Buddha would be seated um, on, the, on a lotus petal throne. Um, you see sutras where whole columns of characters are enclosed within um, the sketches of pagoda structures, the same way that the body or the, the bodily relics of a human Buddha would have, would be enclosed within a, a stupa reliquary um, type of thing like that. Um, so you see it in the, the material manuscript culture, um, but you also see it um, in the cultures of recitation. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of stories about people who um, have not created physical handwritten copies of the sutras but who have recited a sutra, often the heart sutra or something very short, any number of times. And they're given an oracular vision where they're taken to a pure land or Tsushita heaven or one of these various places, and a storeroom is opened for them, and they look at the storeroom, and they see thousands upon thousands of physical handwritten copies of the sutra, and they're told, those are yours. right? And they say, well, I didn't write any. <laughs> And, and the point is not that they are not that they didn't write any. It's that they, they they spoke them. They wrote them into existence with their with their breath and their tongue and um, and that sort of thing. So there's there's no conceptual difference in this medieval Buddhist culture of Japan that I'm talking about. There's no conceptual difference between something that's written on paper uh, or silk or you know whatever the substance is and something that's written um, through recitation with the breath. Um, similarly, uh, sorry, and the reason that happens has to do with this process um, that we talked about a while back about the sutras going from being something that's held in the hand to being something that's read with the eyes to something that's held in the mind and it's something that is reproduced from inside the human body again into a material form. Yeah. So that there's this, this time, this really important sort of crucial time where for a believer the sutra exists primarily as this um, symbiotic life form within their own body. Mm. And a <laughs> particularly powerful image of this is the chanting skull. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which, so what's a, ch- what's a chanting skull? <laughs> right. Just, this is one of the, yeah, what's a chanting skull? Yeah. Um, this is one of those tropes that shows up all over um, medieval Japanese um, Buddhist setsuwa literature. Um, I mean, there's just dozens and dozens of examples, but basically core story is someone's walking along in a forest uh, at night, traveling from one place to another. Uh, it gets late at night, the sun goes down, they set up camp for the night, 
Um, it's usually a, a Buddhist practitioner, monk, or a wandering ascetic. Um, the person decides to sit up all night um, reciting sutras. And it's important that, it, that it's a nighttime activity. The idea is that just as the sky is dark uh, and ready for the imprint of light, the mind is dark and clean and clear and ready for the imprint of sacred text. Um, <clears throat> so this person sits up and begins reciting the sutras, and then there's like a harmony. <laughs> you know, someone else is reciting the sutras nearby, and you know they're like this. You know, kind of interesting. And the next morning they go and they try to find the person, and it turns out to be a skull. There's just a skull like laying in the leaves somewhere. Uh, that's reciting the sutras and, you know, they look inside the skull and you know, in often cases the, the other bones are scattered and things like that. But inside the skull, there's this little red tongue that's just wagging away, <laughs> you know, reciting the sutras and come to find out someone has, you know, years before had taken a vow that they would recite, you know, X sutra, Y number of times. And yeah. they've died before they've fulfilled their vow, but their body has stayed sort of remarkably sutured together long enough for them to complete this vow. It's like the engine that just kind of keeps them going um, until finally they complete their vow and I guess, poof, their tongue, you know, disintegrates. Sure. So <laughs> we're getting uh, close to the end, but I did want to ask if you could read one passage because one of the uh, very nice things about this book, um, besides some of the very um, uh, provocative and fascinating ideas that you present and ways in which you interpret these texts um, is uh, a lot of you present many um, accounts from the Setsuwa and from sutras of sort of very fabulous and fascinating stories. Um, and so the, we didn't really cover those interviews, but I just wanted you to read a short one just to give the listeners um, a feel for um, it. So maybe on the one on about the character Myo. Sure. Um, this is an example of the very kind of story we were just talking about. Uh, this is from uh, Miracles of the Lotus Sutra collection, uh, story number 110. Um, did you want to say? Or do, um, you, you can read it. I can read it. Okay. Yeah, what, what would you prefer I do? Uh, I'll, I'll go. Go sure. for it. <laughs> um, all right. So, uh, Miracles of the Lotus Sutra, number 110, relates the following story regarding an unnamed official from Higo province. Uh, leaving his home while it's still pitch dark one morning, the man wanders all day and finds himself lost and alone in the deep mountains just as the sun is setting. He spots a small hut standing by itself in the middle of a field, and when he approaches to ask for a night's lodging, he's met by a beautiful woman in gorgeous robes. Suspecting that she is a man-eating demon, uh, he immediately jumps on his horse and gallops away, but she gives chase, along the way changing back in her demonic form. About to be overtaken by the demon, the man's horse stumbles and the man falls headlong into a deep hole. The demon eats the horse bones and all, and threatens to come in after him when a voice, not the man's, answers the demon from deep inside the hole, telling her to go away. She's immediately agitated and eventually departs, leaving the man in fear that he's unwittingly lodged himself in the lair of an even fouler beast. The voice, however, comforts him, saying, and this is a direct quote, I am not a being of the human race, nor am I a demon, deity, or some other such thing. I am the first character of the Lotus Sutra, the character Myo, uh, right, which means rare. Uh, long ago, there was a wandering ascetic. Atop the western ridge here, he raised a stupa, interred a Lotus Sutra inside it, and made a vow, saying, May the Lotus Sutra remain in this barren plain and rescue all beings from danger. 
Many months and years have passed since. The stupa has fallen and rotted away. And as for the miraculous Lotus Sutra, has been battered by the winds, blown and scattered across the land. Only the character Myo still remains here to provide deliverance. As you are no doubt well aware, many evil flesh-eating demons gather in this vicinity. Abiding in this place, I've delivered many beings from their danger, perhaps 70,000 or more. When dawn brightened the next day, a young boy appeared out of the hole in the ground, and it guided the official away. So this is, it's really a wonderful image, isn't it, of this sort of soul, this lone Chinese character hanging out, you know, out in the wilderness. Um, so this is then an example, I guess, of what you're discussing more broadly in this chapter, which is an example of sort of a uh, sutra actually sort of taking on some sort of being a sentient being, becoming a sentient being of sorts. Right, right, right. So just like in the chanting skull kind of motif where the, the sutra vow or the recitation of the sutra is what keeps the body together. In this case, the little bitty fragment of the sutra can still become this little boy, right, who is yeah. able to save the man from the flesh-eating demon. <laughs> Well, we, well, we've taken a lot of your time, and but as a final question, I wanted to ask if there's uh, something you're working on at the moment. As I mentioned at the beginning of the interview, you, um, this book is from 2011, but um, there you, I understand you're working on two other book projects uh, currently. I am. One of them is something completely different. It's a study of um, a particular artist and activist named Akamatsu Toshiko, and um, it's sort of a uh, sweeping history of transformations in visual culture of 20th century trans war Japan through telling the story of this one woman. Um, there's a Buddhist connection there. That is, um, I was interviewing a priest uh, about hell scrolls and he said, well, if you want to see some real hell scrolls, check out this woman's art. <laughs> and so I ended up discussing with him uh, this sort of nuclear art um, that she had done. And so I, I kind of got into it that way. Um, the second project I'm working on, though, is much more properly kind of Buddhist in its, its orientation. Um, and that is um, a study of um, Dogen's writing. Dogen's the country, um, founder of, of Soto Zen uh, in Japan. And um, I'm interested in, in looking at um, various uh, performance and literary genres that Dogen engages in in his vast corpus, um, which uh, are interested in enacting the mind. So you can see the connections to the first book. And I'm thinking here about things like um, koan, these kind of public cases for debate, um, mondo, this kind of rapid pas de deux, um, uh, question and answer um, sort of wrestling back and forth between master and student, uh, things like um, death poems, enlightenment poems, and those kinds of things. That is, places where we have literary genres within Zen Buddhism that are meant to, at least in an ideal sense, show the state of the practitioner's mind. Um, and I'm not sure exactly, um, it's still very much in its kind of early stages, um, in terms of what I want to want to do with it, but I'm very interested in some of the ideas that have been um, bandied about in the pages of uh, Philosophy East and West and a couple of book series from um, Oxford University Press, um, MIT, and Cambridge that have to do with um, theories of an action, that is E-N-A-C-T-I-O-N, and the ways that the body shapes the mind and the mind shapes the body. Hmm. So that's where I'm going next. <laughs> that sounds great. Um, well, we'll look forward to those books. And I should mention finally for 
uh, our listeners that we only sort of scratched the surface of the book. We didn't even discuss the cl- conclusion in which uh, you uh, address circumambulatory reading. So, and also, um, like I said, there um, we basically skipped all the actual textual evidence that you present from the Setsuwa and the Sutras for your arguments. But um, anyway, I wanted to thank you for speaking with me today. Uh, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you. I really appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, pleasure's mine. And I wanted to thank our listeners for tuning in. That's it for today's New Books in Buddhist Studies. See you next time. <laughs>